Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place from the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for his burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he, carried, he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Second reading is uh, James 1, 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. We have a couple of uh, readings that precede the Holy Gospel. <clears throat> Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and abounding in steadfast love. The tract. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news, the gospel so far. Grace and peace to one and all. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Most Holy Father, we give you thanks for the goodness of your Son, Christ our Lord. Indeed, we ask you to surround us with his, his care, his compassion, and imbue in us the spirit of confidence to speak well your word to all around us, to all situations. We ask this in your most precious name. Amen. Well, I ask the question, is uh, Jesus some kind of a, a misplaced optimist? You know, when things are not going well, he comes and he says, all right, all right, I'm out there, it's time now, I got the right sign, things are not going well, things are falling apart, I'm going to bring good news to the people. Did you kind of count your way through that thing? I mean, it starts off with, uh, he is uh, taken out into the wilderness. It's not a desert. Would you believe it? Back in those days, and even further back, around Palestine and up in the hills, there were cougar-like animals, you know, panthers, and all sorts of strange beasts. It was uh, forested. But as uh, people grew more and more in numbers, they, they shut down things and cut all the trees. And it was still sort of a wilderness when Jesus was there, not a desert, a wilderness. And so he's out there, he's out there 40 days. How many of us have ever done that? I mean, we go like two hours, and what do we say? I remember as a kid, oh, I'm starving to death. Oh, I'm going to collapse. Right? I still do that. <laughs> yeah. 40 days. Then he has to face his tormentor, his tormentor, the evil one. And who wants to do that? Now, there's no comparison. Forget all the movies that show that the devil, you know, he's very slick looking and he's powerful and he casts all the priests aside like so many limbs on a tree. He goes, boom, the devil is more powerful than anything. Well, that's crazy. There's no comparison, and that's the point. 
And Jesus, yes, at any time, during those temptations of the devil, at any time, he could have wafted his hand and driven the devil away. But had he done that, then you and I would not have a Savior. Because it was incumbent upon Jesus to be like us 100% and to suffer in his body and his mind. And still, after that, he came and he said, well, good news, it's time to preach the gospel. What a strange mind. Well, then he gets the news that John, his cousin, this is the, this is the family relative, John, you know the baptizer? He gets news that he's in jail. And John is considered by Jesus to be the very best human that ever walked the earth. Can you believe that? The very best human to walk the earth. So Jesus loves John. It's his cousin. He gets his news. He's in jail. What does he do? He says, all right, Jesus, it's good news time, and I'm out there going to preach. I'm going to put myself in harm's way, is what he's saying. This is what happens to people who do good things. They get thrown into the wilderness, tempted by the devil, arrested, and then beheaded. And yet here comes Jesus. He knows all that's happening. He knows that's what his end is. And still, he says, I'm going to persevere. I'm going to preach the gospel that God loves you. Wow, he's not like us, is he? He's one of those optimists. I remember back in 1983, that was way before you were born. That's okay. <clears throat> way back. We were in Kansas, and that was in the middle of the farm crises. <clears throat> All the grain in the area, farming country there is huge in Kansas. Gigantic farms, 4,000 acres. The guys were bringing grain in, wheat, and it was piled up on the streets. Literally, where we lived, the streets were filled with grain during the harvest because they couldn't sell it. If you can't sell your product, you cannot pay your bills. There was a month or more like that, and the guys were just, and people were losing their farms, and it was horrible, and I remember some guy stopped me, I was going down the road, and he rolls his window down, and he says, how come, Verity, Verity, how come you're so happy? I said, well, I actually said, somebody's got to be happy, you're not. <laughs> you got to look at the situation that you're in and adjust to it, but never take your eye off the prize. When we do that, when we Christians and godly people take our eyes off the prize, then we fall prey to all the stuff of life that we think is hopeless, as well as all the unbelievers out there that are saying all kind of nasty things. We become just like them if we take our eyes off the prize. Now the prize for all of us, the biblical heroes, whether it's Mary or Anna or Abraham or Noah, the prize is God himself. 
And so all these temptations and all this stuff and all the news articles and all the things that happen around us tend to distract us from the prize that we tend to focus then on the problem, but not the solution. Now the solution is always going to be the same. It was in those ancient days when the Romans were literally wiping out entire villages. Can you imagine that? An entire village of hundreds of people wiped out for sometimes just silly reasons. Killed, burned, cut up in pieces. When those things happen, you think the news didn't go out? This is the end. What's become of us? There's no more humanity. You can hear all those same things. And yet those who kept their eyes on the prize, which is God himself, we're not going to be distracted. And you look in the Bible and you see all those great heroes, like I mentioned. Abraham kept his eye on the prize of God, even though he was faced with all sorts of weird stuff. And you think about that story there in the Old Testament, where he takes Isaac, that was his wife's, Sarah, her only son. Now, Abraham had other sons. But Sarah only had him, Isaac. So here you go, you got this man binding his son, putting him on this pile of of wood and raising a dagger to kill his own son, her only son. You think he wasn't trembling in his flesh out of fear and anguish? But yet he could do that because he had an absolute faith in God. He never took his eye off the prize. In his faith, he knew God would not allow him to kill the only solution, which is the family lineage that leads to Christ. In his faith, he knew that, but in his flesh... He was probably trembling and wondering what's going on. But in his faith, he was willing, knowing that God would provide a solution right in the middle of a crisis. You don't think that was a crisis of emotions? Come on. He was human. Absolutely. We have Mary. Mary's one of the greatest heroes of the Bible, I think. Because Mary uh, doesn't seem to do many things that are wrong. She's great. What a, what a heroine for young girls. Again, we see that she was about 14 or so when she became pregnant with the Messiah. But it was not Joseph's girl. Or the, the baby. It was his girl in the way of being betrothed, but it was not his wife-to-be baby from him. It was not his child. And so he had two options, like we studied in Bible study. He had two options. Joseph. He could have her killed. Middle East. Or he could divorce her. Because she was saying, well, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And he would say, of course you are. You failed me. You let me down. You abandoned me for some other man. You can hear all these things. We don't see that in the text. But you think he wasn't feeling it? Come on. 
That's why he says, I I can't stand what you're doing. I'm going to divorce you. It took an intervention of God himself to turn that guy around, but that's what he was feeling. And so you got Mary in the middle of this, a young woman, 14, 15 years old, pregnant. Her husband-to-be hates her. Society around her is saying what? What do you think the society around her is saying? Oh, yeah, Mary, we believe you. Yeah, we believe you, Mary. We sure do. You think? You think? No. Boom, boom, boom. If she would have taken her eye off the prize and would have succumbed to all of the emotions and all of the societal pressures and all of those things, she would end up like a lot of us, helpless. But she did not do that. She never took her eyes off the prize, which is God himself and his word. And she said, you know what? I'm the most blessed young woman on planet Earth. Even though nobody likes me, my husband-to-be wants to divorce me. God loves me. She was in the middle of a crisis. Never took her eye off the prize. That's a person to be emulated. Her example. You got Paul himself, St. Paul. We only call him saint because he's dead. You ever notice that? People don't become saints until they die. So he's a saint. He certainly was no saint before he became a Christian. He did all sorts of nasty, evil things. But he had these wonderful sayings that he got from the Holy Spirit. He said that. Fight the good fight of faith. And when Paul used those words fight, he meant pugilism. He was using pugilistic terms, not the silliness that we hear today. I'm going to fight for you in Washington, D.C. You know, that's craziness. They don't fight for anything. Really fighting. And I think he probably took it for literal because he was often beat up. Beat up in his body. Left on the road for dead. And arrested. Because he never took his eye off the prize. No matter what was happening, he would lift up the voice of God in the Word and he would say, God is our Savior, God is our friend. What are these people, eternal optimists? Yeah. So you and I, we switch on our flat screens or we look at our phones and we see another tragedy, a car hit, a child abducted, children shot to death, all these things, and we're saying, this has never happened before, and it's terrible, and are we going to succumb to the crises, is the question? Or are we going to keep our eyes on the prize and say, where can we apply the only solution that works? The only solution. That people are a sinful bunch. We do whatever we want until we see the glory of Jesus. We see him on the cross. When he looks at us from the cross and he says what? Father, forgive them. When he, the Lord of life, the Lord of all the universe, submitted to become a human, is on the cross, beat up, bloody, dehydrated, his friends are all gone, all the stuff we think is the most terrible, he's suffering, 
He's on the cross. He looks from us to us. And he says, Father, forgive Tim Verity. He doesn't know what he's doing. When we get into that mode of thinking, just like King David, who was always making a big problem for himself, instead of blaming other people, instead of asking other people to provide solutions for us, when we go to the cross and we say, Lord, speak to me, and he does. Forgive you, I do, is what he says. Lord, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And we hear that and we appropriate that. We say, thank you, God, I don't know what I'm doing. But in you, I will find my presence. I will find my dignity. I will find my confidence. I will be able to bring forth the word of hope and love and change. As one lady said from the disaster in Florida, we don't need prayers anymore. We want change. I'm not sure what she meant, but I want it too. I want Christians everywhere to bring the word of God to every situation that exists in our lives. And to say this, yes, we are dirty, rotten, rebellious, sinful people. And we need to stop doing the things we're doing that are bad. All of us. And then come to the cross. We've got to say those things. Come to the cross and hear those precious words. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then to spread that word, as Jesus did. That's what he was doing in the middle of a crisis, talking about the kingdom of God is now here. And we have the same joy to do in the middle of all the stuff we see on TV, whatever it is in life, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right now. It's us. We have so much power. I like to equate us to automobiles. We're the most powerful automobiles. 700 horsepower engines, each one of us, tank full of gas, a map on, on MapQuest. We know where we should go, and we never start the engine. We Christians got the power. We got the power. And by faith, we don't ever give up looking at the prize, no matter what's happening, and then we bring others along with us we say, let's look at Jesus. We can't fix what happened in the past. We hope to prevent something again. But always we'll look at the cross. We'll look at Jesus who said, I'm here to preach the good news in the middle of a crisis. And his crisis was bigger than anything we've ever seen. Because he was God himself. And that's what they did to God. Think about it. They put him on a cross. And he said, I love him. He loves us. So that's the word for today from this eternal optimist. For us to be just as optimistic in every situation as we look at the cross and never take our eyes off the prize, which is God himself, heaven. Heaven on earth gives us confidence and hope. So, dear Christian friends, let's bow our heads in prayer. Most Holy Father, we're so grateful for the things you give us in Christ our Lord. Keep us safe. Keep us strong. Your testimony ever before us. 
We ask it in your most precious name. Amen.